Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Pregnant to silicon, because some things you can only do in video games. And salutations, everybody, and welcome to another installment of Fragments of Silicon, your weekly vertical slice of gaming goodness and geek culture. I'm your host, Adam, and with me, as always, are Petty Fan, Yo, Galix, I am here, and Ogre. Yes, man. <laughs> Was that even words? My guess is no. <laughs> uh, anyway, so how are. How are all of you doing tonight? Uh, yeah. All right, we'll go. We'll start with you, Petty Fan, because I think you have some chips on your shoulder that need unloading. Let's see. First off, I still haven't heard back from the doctor about the test results they did Friday, which is kind of pissing me off. And I had to do yard work today in the heat because this has been the only two days we haven't had rain. So, yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> Beauty noted. And uh, just so much tiredness. Uh-huh. I can't wait till I get the sleep apnea get taken care of. Hopefully you don't fall asleep during the show. Yeah. Uh, which is a real and, danger. And it's like, for those of you who are new, yes, I have actually done that before. It's not fun. For anyone. You have to bust out the air horns and everything. And even then, I don't hear you. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, anything else going on? Um, I got Tetris Ultimate for my 3DS. Huh. How Ultimate so, is it? Um, it has all the recent game modes of Tetris, but for some reason it doesn't have the original theme. Strange, because I thought they they had to have that. Uh, yeah, they were. I, I think they had like some dubstep, dubstep like remix to it, and I'm like, nope, volume off. That, yeah, that that sounds awful. I am the man who arranges to drop the bass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, your turn, Gallus. Uh well, uh, we're having our basement waterproofed this week, apparently, which uh, means tons of drilling in the morning when I'm trying to sleep, so that's just brilliant. But uh, um, other than that, uh, not much exciting going on. Um, 
So I'm also a little bit tired, but I don't think I'm in danger of falling asleep. Uh, noises. Um, noises in the morning. That always takes me back to my apartment in college, where, no joke, they were building a bypass near, like nearby, and the, they had one of those huge hammers that put the columns in. And I believe that is actually called a pile driver. Yeah, the, the pile driver. Good God. Hearing that shit at 7 in the morning was just the worst. Well, I'll tell you what. It didn't wake me up, obviously, because it was after that. But it is really weird to take a shower when it sounds like they're drilling the floor out from under you. I don't doubt this. That, that's, that just sounds unnerving. No. Uh, but uh, anything else going on? Um... Not a whole lot. Nothing particular video game-wise. And I'm still stalled on Gundam model building since I am unsure whether I should just get a new hack or what since I lost some pieces for the last one. Where'd you get the model at? Uh, I got it at PortCon, but it was sold by uh, one of the local stores that actually has a, has a, a license with Bandai, so they actually get them indirectly. They had another one last time I checked. I just haven't gotten over there. If they have a license with Bandai, talk to them. They sometimes can order parts. You just might have to pay a little bit for them. I will ask when I'm there. Hmm. And since it was a few parts, I'm not sure if it would be worth it because it was not. it's a high-grade model. It wasn't super expensive. Right. And if I had a spare model, I could use it to paint with. I mean, to practice painting on, rather. Anyway, that's about all that's up with me. All right. Uh, Ogre, you're up. Well, you know, same old, same old. Uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> uh, how's Dragon Ball Xenoverse uh, going? The androids are bastards. Yeah, that's about what I remember. So do they make you fight them during the Cell Saga period, or...? No, no, you fight them during future Trunks' timeline. Ah. I suppose that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I see Naka posted the, the flume fight thing today. Yep. Uh, oh, that's really depressing. It was actually a lot more fun than I thought it would be. <laughs> we actually did a lot better than... We did in our little practice session, but that's what practice is for. Uh, that's good. Uh, let's see. Uh, how's your walks going? I haven't been really doing them lately. My back's been acting up. Like, you have back problems? or? Yeah, you remember that stuff with my back I had, like, months ago? Yeah, I, I mean... Yeah, I, I tend to keep agitating it for some reason. So... Is it something you've ever seen a doctor about? You want to pay for it? Then I'll go. (laughs) I don't think my insurance will cover you. Then don't ask. Okay. Uh, Well, I guess that's it for you this week. How's Naka doing? Fine. 
Barry came back from her vacation, so they're all having fun and everything. <laughs> I don't doubt this. Alright, uh, I guess it's my turn. Well, uh, let's see. MSP has returned. Uh, let's see, this past Friday, we welcomed back, you know, uh, old friends of the show, Chuck and the List. That was really fun. You know, it's like, oh, shit, I think we stayed up until about 3.30 in the morning just catching up on shit. That's kind, of, kind of what happens when uh, old friends get together after years of not talking to each other. Just, you know, our, our schedules uh, would never align, and especially because, well, MSP spent the last year and a half being not a thing. Uh, let's see. In uh, this show news, well, I'm pleased to announce a new experiment. So, Uh-oh. Okay, so on, uh, let's see, on the last week of August, we're going to be doing some interesting things here. So we're basically going, we're basically splitting that episode into two parts. Now, uh, part A is going to be a new experiment as we're going to be holding our first morning interview uh, that we've ever done. This is mainly because, well, if you're familiar with this show, you know that we broadcast at a certain time of day, and we're pretty, we've been pretty inflexible about that for a long time. That was mainly, du- that was mainly due to, you know, previous staffers having very stringent work hours. And so the upshot is we, you know, we've had to, we couldn't get a lot of European guests on this show because we didn't broadcast a very good hour for them. You know, uh, like when this show uh, gets recorded live, it's usually like three, four in the morning in in Europe. You know, it's like some devs have braved that, you know, inconvenient time, but a lot of them will not do that for obvious reasons. So we are trying out a new initiative, if you will, to see if, you know, we can't be a bit more accommodating with European guests. So on August 25th, we are going to be welcoming Mark, uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce this name because, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's Dutch, so, uh, it's, Martigian Reviewers of Two Tribes Publishing. Uh, like, uh, Two Tribes, if you don't know, they're the ones who made the uh, Toki Tori series on, uh, you know, like WiiWare and PC, and uh, they're currently doing a new game called Rise, which I think is almost done here. And for our second part, Part B, we will be having... Uh, Denny Chu of Bandai Namco Entertainment on the pro- program, and this is also this is another reason why we're doing this experiment here is because they have requested a 15-minute interview. You know, it's like they they apparently felt that 30 minutes was too, uh, was too much time for one uh, for their staff to you know to talk about the game that they're going to talk about, which is currently slated to be One Piece Pirate Warriors Three. 
So, yeah, that might be happening at a different time as well because, you know, we have, it, it's still a little far out to work out those kind of details. It's probably coming in about two weeks beforehand. So, yeah, some interesting times coming up in the show. Uh, and that's about it. I mean, personally, nothing, you know, Outside of uh, the show stuff, nothing is nothing big has been going on. And so, with that in mind, uh, merrily we roll along to the interview portion of the program. And this week, we are welcoming uh, Nayan Ramachandran of Playhouse. <clears throat> uh, Nayan Ramachandran. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no problem. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, let's just. Uh, start with, uh, how did you get into the video game industry in the first place? Uh, that's actually um, uh, kind of a funny story. I, uh, so about uh, in 2006, um, I lived in Japan uh, as an English teacher, and uh, that was pretty much just after college. And basically what happened was, while I was a teacher, I had met um, you know, a lot of really great people who were both students and teachers themselves. Um, and I made uh, really good friends with um, a guy named Josh Weatherford, who now actually works for uh, Concept, uh, and he's working on the uh, the Red Ash Kickstarter. Um, but you know, at the time he was a university student and I was a teacher. And um, uh, in '09, I moved back to the states. Uh, my job as teacher had ended, and I decided to go back and uh, sort of start a career in the U.S. And I was working in marketing at the time, and. Um, so from 2009 to 2012, I was working uh, in the States, um, mostly doing copywriting and um, sort of banner ad management and server management. Um, and I, you know, I received an email from Josh, and he said, hey, you know, uh, I'm working for Playism now. Uh, it's a small, small project. It's only me and one other person, and we need somebody to do um, localization editing, so English localization editing as well as marketing. Uh, you know, is that something you'd be interested in? And he said, you know, I know you always wanted to come back to Japan, plus, you know, you've always wanted to work in the game industry, so why not? And I, I you know, I immediately said yes to it, you know, did an interview and everything. And then by the middle of, uh, I started working there from, from the U.S., technically uh, from December 2012. Uh, but by the end of June 2013, I was uh, in the office in Osaka uh, and, and working directly in the HQ. Mm. And uh, how extensive is your translation and localization skills? Um, well, I'm actually I'm actually not uh, a localizer. So I, um, when I actually moved back to Japan, I had forgotten a lot of my Japanese. I, I do um, when I first started, I was doing English localization editing. So basically, the the whole process is that you you get the, the the game text in its original language, and then you have translators translate it over. And then you have a checker that checks for uh, accuracy. Uh, usually if you're working with people that you know well, then localization check goes really quickly. Uh, but if you're, you know, if we're outsourcing, if we're working with new localizers, then we are pretty stringent with our, um, when we're checking. After the check, which is basically just for accuracy, it's given to a localization editor. And the editor is the one who kind of shapes it into something that's um, not just more readable, but sort of fits the themes of the character speaking, um, makes sure that, uh, you know, it sounds better. And it sounds, basically, if, but when the localization editor is done with it, um, what they're what they're 
their job is basically is they're trying to make sure that when you play the game in, in English, that you never feel like it was ever in another language, that it was originally written in English. Like that's, that's, the, that's the kind of thing that the localization editor hopes to be able to do. Right, and uh, well, that sounds like a difficult task. It is. Um, I mean, it's uh, it's very, very um, sort of uh, attention or or, or um, uh, detail oriented. It's it's really important to make sure that you're not missing anything. Um, you have to make sure that things flow properly. That you have consistency with the type of voice per character, um, and. Uh, Really, after a while, like basically, when I first started the plays, and we were just uh, three people working in a larger company, um, and basically we had uh, me and Josh doing all of the localization for our games from Japanese into English. So Josh would do the initial localization from Japanese into English, and then I would do the English editing, uh, and uh, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of fun. But it was a lot of work, and I'm honestly pretty glad that uh, I'm not part of it anymore because it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. And what are your present duties at Playism now? Um, right now I'm the senior marketing manager. So basically I handle, I, I oversee all of our um, foreign marketing. So I say foreign because we're all based in Japan, but basically uh, Western marketing, so Europe and America. Hmm. Right, and what does that entail exactly? Um, so we have uh, one person under me that does all of our social media stuff. So he handles um, the plays and blog. He handles our uh, our Twitter, our um, our Facebook, making sure that you know connecting with fans. And I have another person under me that is mostly dealing with uh, contacting media. So setting up press releases, making sure they get review codes, um, arranging stuff like this. Uh, in this case, you know. Uh, Adam, you got in touch with me directly, so I was able to do it myself. But uh, basically, um, right. I have two people that kind of handle both sides. And then um, I usually will handle personally stuff like uh, events. So we go to PAX and we go to TGS and BitSummit, and I usually uh, tend to uh, organize those myself. Mm. Right. And, uh, well, before I go more into this, uh, my uh, colleague Galix here had some uh, localization questions for you. Well, mostly, mostly I had one since the game we were that you worked on that we were experiencing was uh, uh, D4 Dark Dreams Don't Die. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering about the casting for that because they, uh, particularly for the main character because he certainly has a, a very Boston accent and he's a very Boston character and as is a couple of the secondary characters. I was wondering if you did any regional casting for that or if it was all just whoever sounded good. Um, that's just, that's actually a really good question. Um, I unfortunately I don't know the answer to that because um, the PC version of D4, all of the uh, dialogue and um, like voice casting was actually done for the Xbox One version originally, which we didn't work on. Um, that was worked on with Microsoft, so all of that stuff was already done when it came to PC. Uh, wow. We basically were working with additional text, like. Um, menus that were added in or additional text that was added into the game for the PC release. Uh, so a lot of that stuff was stuff that um, we didn't actually work on. But, you know, I, I wouldn't mind, like, checking into that because I'm kind of curious myself. Um, I, I go drinking with Swery once in a while, so well, maybe maybe next time I go drinking with him, I'll ask him. <laughs> oh, that's us I'm sorry for asking something outside of your wheelhouse. Then. No, no, it's totally fine. Yeah. 
Yeah, D four was an interesting game. You know, it's like when we could get it to run. Like, admittedly, right. we had some problems uh, getting the game to work, whether it be like high specs or I don't know, uh, uh, like incompatibilities with graphic uh, cards or something like that. It's just one of the uh, things you deal with with PC gaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a very interesting, quirky game. So. Yeah. So how did you get, uh, get D four to the PC anyway? Um, that's actually a very, very um, cool story. Basically, um, uh, Square and Access Games are based in Osaka, so their office is actually only about a 20-minute walk from our office. Um, and in the past, uh, some of my coworkers had already uh, met and hung out with him, but I had actually never met Swery. Um And I happened to be in Kyoto for um, uh, Jake Kasdell's birthday party, Jake Kasdell being the, the director of um, 17-Bit, the guys working yeah. on Galaxy. Yeah, we've actually had him on the show. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah. So, uh, That's before he moved over to Osaka, though. That's correct. Yeah. So he used to he used to be in in Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So he um, just after he moved back to Kyoto, uh, we went over to Kyoto for his birthday party, and swear he happened to be there, and I finally had a chance to meet him and chat with him. And you know, I was talking to him, and I said, you know, Swery, we both live in Osaka. Why don't we go drinking sometime? And he said, Yeah, that's a great idea. We definitely should. Um, and so me and uh, a couple guys from my office plus. A couple guys from Intelligent Systems, uh, who are also based in Kyoto, uh, and Swery, and a couple other guys um, from Access Games got together, and we went uh, for drinks and dinner. And um, you know, we were just hanging out, and near the end of the night, Swery, you know, started talking about how he really wanted to do uh, a PC version of the game, and he just kind of said this off the cuff. And he had he had already shown, I think, about six months before, he had already shown sort of a PC test version of the game at GDC, basically to show that that, um, that while the Kinect worked perfectly with the game, that he could create a version of D4 that used different controls that still kind of fit uh, the game just as well. And he was talking about the mouse controls in this case. But he really wanted to do a PC version. He was kind of a little disappointed with how the game had done on Xbox One, and he wanted to expand out and get it out to more people. And you know he had seen you know a lot of um, a lot of posts on forums saying that you know you know we really want to do we want we really want to play D4 on PC so please do it so he he was just talking about that idly and you know we you know the three of us from Blazon were kind of sitting there thinking like maybe we should try and work with him and um, I mean at the time we were just you know we were just friends of his and you know he'd worked with far bigger publishers, so we didn't really think we had a chance of working with him. But the next day in the office, I said, you know, we should really email him and, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? He says, no, nah, it's okay, and, you know, we decided to go with another publisher. So, you know, on a whim, we decided to email him, uh, and then we got our first meeting with them and to just talk about, you know, um, what was possible and what they, they wanted out of it and what we could provide. Uh, and it just went from there, and eventually um, uh, they decided to go with us, and we helped to bring um, the to PC. Was it a hard task bringing it to the PC? Um, it was on Access' side. I think it was the first time they've ever internally ported the game to PC. I don't know if you remember, but Deadly Premonition did come to PC, but it wasn't done by them. I've actually uh, been playing uh, Deadly Premonition, and then uh, because uh, you know swearing and all that. Right. Right. 
Yeah, the, the PC version wasn't done by them. It was done by their publisher at the time. So this is the first chance to actually do one internally. Uh, and I think we had a lot of meetings with them about um, you know, what PC gamers kind of expect out of a port. And um, I think a lot of the things that they thought were maybe fringe cases actually turned out to be, you know, like I would talk to them and be like, no, this is actually what most PC gamers want. Like this is not a fringe case. This is not just what you know, some tiny minority wants. So we should you know, definitely look into putting it in. Things like graphical options and you know, being able to turn on and off uh, anti-aliasing and V-Sync and you know, all these different things. Those were things that as you know, predominantly a console publisher, wasn't something that they thought of on a regular basis. Um, so for them, it was a little surprising, I think, um, that they would have to do all of these things. And it was a it was a hard it was a hard time I think for them because the QA was especially difficult. You know, in the case of um, QA for uh, for consoles, you know, you know you don't only have to QA for you, you go through QA for you know standardized hardware, but then when you submit it, you also go through the console holders QA. Um, but in the case of a PC release, you kind of have to QA all these different configurations on your own. Right. And that's kind of, uh, you know, going back a bit, that's kind of the thing with PC gaming. There's all sorts of different uh, configurations and uh, systems out there. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Uh, so all in all, how long did it take to convert the game uh, to PC? Um, a lot of the work was actually already done early on, basically the, the literal conversion, uh, because uh, Swery had actually shown... Um, D4 on PC at PAX East this year, uh, which was in March or April, uh, and we were actually there too. And you know the funny thing about that was that at the time we had you know two separate booths. You know D4 had a had an Access Games booth you know in the regular area, and Playism had a booth as part of um, the Indie Mega booth. But we were in the same line sort of as the booths were set up. And we and Access were already working together to get the PC version out, but we hadn't announced it yet. So, you know, we had people coming to our booth saying, like, oh, man, that's so cool. You know, D4, did, you, did you know D4 is coming to PC? That's so neat. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. I didn't hear about that. So we couldn't really talk about it. You know, we had to kind of pretend that, like, oh, yeah, no, that's totally neat. Maybe I should talk to Swery and, and you know, see how that port's going. <laughs> yeah. So what is uh, Swery like in real life? Um, he is exactly as he seems in interviews. He's a really, like, bubbly, friendly guy. He's very, very laid back, easygoing. He's not, um, I think, I think a lot of people have this impression of creators in general that they have a persona in interviews and then in real life they're, you know, they're like, you know, Hollywood celebrities that need, you know, certain color M&Ms in their bowls and, you know, they can't be disturbed within, between this hour and this hour and they won't look in certain directions and stuff. And he's not like that. He really is just a very, like, down-to-earth regular guy. Um, he is very, very friendly. He, when he can, he actually brings his wife uh, to a lot of uh, the events. Like we had Bid Summit last week, and he brought his wife uh, uh, with him um, just so you know to show her to show her around to all the different booths, and you know, she can get a better handling of you know idea of what he's doing. He's um, there was one time we had an interview, and unfortunately the interviewer um, was late. And uh, you know I, I have worked with creators who. Um, are oftentimes um, sort of unforgiving. And uh, Japanese punctuality is really, really important. And a lot of people otherwise would be kind of really angry. And he wasn't. You know, he was just like, oh, I guess he's late. So uh, I don't know. What do you want to talk about while we're waiting? 
you know, just very relaxed, um, very, very cool guy. And he's a lot of fun to hang out with. Hmm, sounds like it. Uh, so, uh, was most of the demand for D4 on PC from uh, the Western uh, fans? Oh, no, absolutely. Um, in general, uh, and this is actually something that uh, Swery himself kind of thinks is, is unfortunate, but he doesn't have um, a huge following in Japan. A lot of people don't really know who he is. Uh, he has a much bigger cult following uh, in America. Um, you know, he always says, like, whenever I go to events in America, people want to take pictures with me. But when I'm walking around the street in Osaka, nobody knows who I am. Um, and it's, it's, it's actually very true. Like, he definitely has more of a cult following uh, in America. Um, and so for the PC stuff, also, you know, PC gaming isn't really um, that big in, in Japan. You know, while we do a lot of PC releases, we do have, like, a niche market that we work with. So oftentimes it's, it really is... Uh, the Japanese side is, is sort of the hardcore PC gamer that already wants to play Western games. Um, and in the West, you know, the PC gamers want both Japanese and Western games. Now, speaking of which, uh, now, Playism does actually all things. Like, you, you guys don't not only, uh, you know, take Japanese indie games and bring them over here, but you take Western indie games to Japan. That's correct, yeah. So we do, um, we're technically... An, was uh, the, the line that we usually always use is uh, we're an indie-focused digital distribution platform and publisher. So we work with um, Western developers and Japanese developers to take their games to foreign markets. So we help with the localization, we help with the marketing, we help with the release, we help with organizing sales for their games. We do a lot of the stuff that developers kind of just don't want to deal with on a regular basis. All right. And uh, what sort of Western games have you released in uh, Japan? Um, we, so sort of our, our involvement with each of these games sort of varies, but in general, uh, we've worked on, um, Machinarium, uh, To the Moon, Papers, Please, Dear Esther, Defender's Quest, um, shoot, there's a whole, Life Goes On. Yeah, we've worked with a lot of, uh, indie games, uh, bringing them to Japan, um, and actually we've recently released one on Steam called In Space We Brawl, which is a, a, a local, co- local competitive uh, four-player uh, uh, sort of fighting game. Right. Right. And how do you market these games in Japan, given the, uh, you know, the barriers to both indie, uh, uh, indie games, digital games, and PC gaming? Um, yeah, it's an uphill battle, but the, the, the good thing is that like, things like BitSummit have shown that, um, <clears throat> that Japanese gamers are sort of really opening their, their minds about like, the kind of games they want to play and how they want to consume them. There's no question that you know, retail uh, brick-and-mortar uh, purchases are way over digital sales, but it is changing slowly. People are starting to get used to it. And the nice thing is that we do have good relationships with um, with magazines like 4Gamer and GameSpark and, and Famitsu. So it allows us to really get the word out about these games and make sure that, um, that people know they exist. And on the other side, we also work with um, uh, a lot of Let's Players in Japan um, who tend to post their stuff on like Nico Nico Doga, which is basically like J- Japanese YouTube. Yeah. Um, and so we work with a lot of them to you know just play through the games and kind of show... Um, you know, what, what the games are all about. And, and I think really once you are able to show 
gamers like what the gameplay is, uh, it's it's less about like convincing people to play the game and more about just putting the game in front of them, and they'll always pick up the game that's that's worth picking up. Hmm. And uh, going back to D four, uh, how long has that game been out now? Uh, let's see. So we put out the PC version on June fifth, if I remember correctly. So we're going on about two months now. Uh, and how is the game done uh, in that time period? It's done pretty well. I think um, one of one of the things is that uh, it's it's not quite you know um, flying off the shelves in the way a game would. Uh, maybe two years ago on Steam. Steam has really changed, but it's doing, it's doing well, and we're all really happy with the results, and we just want to make sure that, you know, as many people that want to play it get to play it. Um, but, yeah, like, Steam, Steam has really changed. It's not really the same as it was before. It's, you can't just release a game and have an instant hit on your hands. Like, it, you know, if you release a game of, of reasonable quality, good quality, um, you know, uh, three years ago on Steam, uh, you would probably sell a good amount of units, 20,000, 30,000, pretty easily. Um, but these days, it's a much more crowded uh, crowded marketplace, plus there's a lot more competition. Um, so the, it, there's a lot more you have to think about when you release something on Steam these days. This is true. Uh, you know, ever since they opened the floodgates, it, it's become a much bigger platform, so to speak. Um, right, yeah, and and I think one of the biggest problems with it is that right now it's it's very hard to figure out like how do I get myself out there on Steam? You know, you, there's there's a lot of different avenues, a lot of different tools that they give you, but um, they don't. It's it's they work differently from from say a console uh, manufacturer who kind of you know is you know as long as you engage them, they're like, oh yeah, we've got this deal and that thing, and we'll help you market it this way and so on and so forth. And they kind of sort of work with you on a regular basis. And Steam kind of wants you to engage them for certain things, but kind of wants you to kind of just do it yourself. This, uh, indeed. Uh, yeah. uh, well, do you just deal with like Steam, or do you deal with other uh, digital distribution platforms? Um, well, yeah. So we we have obviously you know our own platform, playism-games.com, which is you know it's DRM-free uh, downloads plus a uh, Steam key when you purchase it for free. Um, plus we you know we work with Steam, we work with Humble Bundle quite a lot. I'm really good friends with a lot of the guys at Humble, um, so I really love working with them. And we also release games on GOG. And uh, okay, so you have your own platform. Uh, what advantage does it offer? Over like Steam or G, uh, or GOG. Um, so one of the big things is you know GOG is is only DRM free, which I think if you're really into that, that's that's fantastic, and and I do I do really believe in in DRM free, um, and you know a lot of people really use Steam for convenience. It's like you know it's all where, where all my games are, so I just use it. Um, for us, basically, we we want to give people choices, so. We've sort of tried to make Playism into like the one-stop shop for Japanese indie games. So if you go there, you're going to see, you know, a lot of indie games that we've worked on, um, ready for purchase. Uh, and then when you purchase the game, uh, you get a DRM-free version of the game. Plus, you also get a free Steam key um, because we know that, like, you know, people want to be able to play the game when they're on a flight or something. They don't want to have to deal with, you know, 
connecting the servers, but at the same time they want the convenience of Steam. So we kind of we kind of like straddle uh, both sides. Makes sense. Makes sense. And uh, is your plat is Playism open to the world, or is it just like uh, specific regions? No, it's actually open to the world right now. Um, if you Basically, we've got two sides to the site. We've got playism.jp, which is the Japanese language one, and then we've got playism-games.com, which is the English one. Um, and we use right now we're using um, PayPal and uh, a few other Japanese payment plans, plus we're opening up credit card payments uh, later. Uh, but basically, we want to make it so that it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you can purchase the game. There's no region lock at all. There's no blocking. Um, so no matter where you are, if you go on play as a new, able to purchase a game. Um, and because it's PayPal, even if you go to the Japanese side, you don't need a Japanese credit card in order to purchase anything. You can totally just use your regular, you know, American PayPal account, and you'll be totally fine. Right. Now, is the fact that you are DRM free has that been a point of contention with some of the people you've dealt with? Um, it depends on the developer, but in general, um, Western developers have no problem with it. I, I've never dealt with a Western developer who would want to do um, well, this is more uh, on sort of VRM. Yeah, this is more on the Japanese side because I know there are Japanese devs out there who, who like uh, not to name names, but who like use Steam solely for DRM purposes. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean. It, we do have a few games that um, that don't have DRM-free versions, uh, and so we just have the Steam keys for purchase. Uh, so what we do in those situations, basically, when you purchase it, you get a Steam key, and that that sort of that makes people feel better about you know the developers feel better about uh, that. But actually, to be honest, like most of the Japanese indie developers are totally cool with DRM-free. Um, they will sometimes have like a CD key or something, but we do sort of encourage them to to do DRM-free and. They do appreciate. They do understand. Um, a lot of it just comes down to the fact that they're just like they're just worried about like you know losing out on sales. Um, and we've been able to talk to them and work with them and make sure that they don't really um, they that they understand that you know uh, including DRM in, in their game can actually affect their sales in the West. Um, but yeah, most of the time if if we have a game that um, doesn't have a DRM free version, it's actually not because the the developers using Steam as DRM, it actually usually means that they're using some aspect of the Steam API to fill in something like matchmaking, like multiplayer matchmaking or leaderboards or something that they haven't been able to replace themselves. They don't have the budget or the time to do so. So they haven't been able to make a DRM-free version uh, without the Steam API uh, in there. I see. Uh, right. So there are a couple other games I want to ask uh, you about here. Uh, sure. First of all is uh, La Mulana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, as I understand it, Playism is involved with the sequel to this. Yes. Yeah, that's correct. So we did the 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 very very first Kickstarter that we did was the Kickstarter from La Mulana Two. Mm. Well, so how did that all come about? Um, so we actually worked with uh, Nigoro, the developers of La Mulana, uh, on La Mulana One, the PC version. It was actually the first game that we launched uh, the English Playism site with. Uh, and that was also the first, as far as I remember, is the first Japanese indie game, uh, or maybe the first Japanese game on Steam. First Japanese indie game on Steam, uh, and the first Japanese indie game to get through um, Greenlight as well. Um, so we we we've been working heavily with them, and basically they approached us and they said, hey, we want to make Lamalana 2, but the sales of Lamalana 1 were not such that we can 
make the llama llama two that we want to. So what we're going to do is we're going to just make it, you know, it's going to be the same characters, same assets. Uh, but basically, um, we have the same character and the same assets, but we're just going to do new levels. And we said, well, that doesn't seem very exciting. And they said, yeah, well, we really want to do um, a new llama llama two with a new character and new assets and new levels and all this stuff. But we just don't have the money. Uh, and then we basically said, like, what about Kickstarter? And we started talking about that. Uh, and, you know, eventually we just ended up uh, doing Kickstarter because it just seemed like the best option for us. And so what was running the, uh, the Kickstarter from Japan like? Uh, it's, it was actually really difficult. We, we worked a lot of long hours, a lot of all-nighters to make sure that we were addressing fans' concerns in a timely manner. Um, you know, in general, even most of the regular business that we do, um, we sort of have a 12-hour 12, 12 thing, so it's, we have to kind of make sure that we deal a lot with companies in the U.S., and that's most of my job. So when dealing with anybody, you, know, you kind of have to make sure that you do as much as possible with, in replying because the next reply that you get back is only going to be in 12 hours because so they're asleep at the time that you know, I send out something. So um, with the Kickstarter, we just had to make sure that we were you know, on top of things uh, and make sure that we were... You know, Kind of a week to weird times that we could address like real concerns that uh, that backers had. And what sort of concerns did they have? I mean, it was never it was never anything serious, um, but they were. It was mostly curiosity. A lot of the backers, you know, we would post uh, like one of the reward tiers was um, a physical version of the game, and they really just wanted to know what does this physical version of the game look like. Like we don't know what the box looks like, what's the cover art, and then you know, with the Kickstarter, you have to to. So you don't sound tone deaf, or you don't sound like you're missing out uh, on on what they're saying. You really do need to respond to them fairly quickly and say like, "Hey guys, we know we've been listening, and we know that you want to see what the box art is." So you know, we did like a little mock up, and here you go. Mm. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so, what was the mo- what was the thing that they were most vehement about? Uh, uh, um. I think the one thing they were really dealing about was the gameplay in general. Like they wanted to make sure that it's just you know it's it's you know it's just as hard as the original. And, and one of the thing, big things that uh, uh, Nara the the director of Lam Lana Two, what he said specifically was you know look we want to change the beginning of Lam Two to make it easier for people to understand where they're supposed to go from the start, but. The, the game is just going to be just as difficult as before. Like nothing there is going to change. We're just going to make sure that more people can get into it, so they can understand why so many people love the game. Mm. And uh, well, how, how well did the Kickstarter do in total? Uh, so we had a minimum goal of two hundred thousand, and we did uh, two hundred and seventy-seven thousand. So we was pretty. It was it was a pretty good campaign. We we learned a lot doing it. You know, it was our very first time, so we didn't really know how to structure stretch goals properly. We didn't really know how to, um, you know, to set up reward tiers properly. How to write a, a Kickstarter page properly. We did a lot of research, but in the end, you really do learn way way more from just doing it than you do from the research that you do beforehand. Oh no doubt, no doubt. Uh, well, how, how many uh, how many uh, Kickstarters have you done since then? We've uh, so I've been involved in two more since then. Um, we did uh, we worked with uh, Noob Maker, the developers of Infinite Space, on uh, Project Scissors Nightcry, which is sort of a clock tower style horror game. Uh, and then we were also part of the 
um, Koji Igarashi's Bloodstained uh, Kickstarter campaign. Oh, wow. Uh, what, what role did you serve on uh, Bloodstained? Oh, we did a lot of stuff. We did all the localization um, for the other pages. Um, we, were, we were part of all the planning meetings. Um, we did a lot of uh, work with personally with the garage. We're continuing to do work with them. And we also did a weekly podcast um, as part of the campaign. Oh, neat. I wasn't expecting that. Ah, but, uh, so what's Koji Igarashi like? Uh, he is one of the nicest people I've ever met. He's a really soft-spoken guy, um, very, very humble, very nice. He's the kind of guy who, you know, when you meet him, he's just like, uh, you know, thanks for doing all this work. And I'm like, no, dude, thank you for making, you know, so many amazing games. I'm just honored to, you know, work with you. He's a very funny guy. Like, he... He's the kind of guy that when you get him into a candid situation, he's very sort of, he's strong about the way, like what he believes in when it comes to game design, but at the same time, he will listen to other people and he wants other people's feedback. And uh, he really, really enjoys working with people who he respects. And it's, it's very, it's really, it's really nice working with him, honestly. He's a very, very nice guy. Hmm. That, that seems the impression I, I always got about him. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, for this session, uh, I have to ask about Toho. Okay. So, oh, right. You guys are the guys doing that, too. Yes, we are. Yeah. So, uh, okay, how did you get Toho? Uh, perseverance. A lot of trapping, zoomed in the corner during events, a lot of calling him until he wouldn't answer our phone calls anymore. We were, it was just perseverance. Oh, so you just wore him down, basically. Basically, I mean, eventually at some point, you know, he said, like, oh, you know, this is, this is something that's probably a good idea. So, yeah, let's work together. Right. So what, what are you doing exactly with Toho at this point? Um, so we're the publisher for, um, for the Toho mainline games as well as any of the derivative titles that want to release in the West. And is that, ju- is that the, uh, all of them or is that just some of them? Um, it's not necessarily all of them. Uh, like, uh, they may do self-publishing, or they may be done by, like, Zoom might actually help with the publishing itself. Um, but so far for the West, uh, if it's on the West and it's on PC, it's a legal release, then, yeah, we're probably involved. Okay. And uh, have, have you released any of the Toho games yet? So we released Toho 14, uh, Double Dealing Character, in the West. Um, and we also released um, Takoman, which is like a, a crazy, like ultra hard side-scrolling sort of Mega Man-style game uh, with a little bit of side-scrolling shmup in there as well. And uh, what's been the response to those games uh, in the West? So, um, a lot of people are really loving it. Um, unfortunately, there have been quite a few people that are pretty angry that we weren't able to release. Um, a localized version of Toho 14. Like, when we released it, we just weren't able to get it into English. And that's something, I, unfortunately, I can't get into uh, the whys of that. But um, basically, you know, people were disappointed with that. Some people were okay with it. They were like, hey, at least I can play a legal release of the game. Um, but it's something that we'd like to work on. Like, we want to make sure that people are happy with the releases that we put out. So we're always listening to what they say. No doubt, no doubt. Well, uh so, uh, final question for the, well, actually, second to final question. What do you have upcoming uh, for both your own platform and other platforms? 
Um, so we just put out a game called um, Forget Me Not, My Organic Garden, where you, you are literally harvesting organs from, from trees and then selling them to the, to the nearby village. It's, kind of, it's a clicker, clicker sort of uh, clicker management game. So it's the one that I really like. Uh, we also have a game coming out very soon called uh, Star Chaser. Um, and it's a, uh, it's a puzzle action game where you're in a sort of a 3D maze and you're able to jump, like alter gravity to jump on walls and ceilings in order to solve puzzles. Um, on the other side, um, <clears throat> We just recently put out um, Astabreed, which is one of our biggest successes on PC. We just put it out on PS4 mm. uh, in the U.S. and in Europe. Um, and we're looking to put out a lot more um, titles on PS4. We're working on uh, Torque L, which is a side-scrolling puzzle game, um, as well as uh, Prismatic Solid, which was actually a really amazing uh, sort of abstract schmuck that came out on Xbox Live Indies a few years ago. Mm. Uh, so we're, we're helping them... Uh, come to PS4, uh, but we're also putting out um, a game called Qualur Sigma, which was an uh, arena-based um, like character action game, uh, which had originally come out on PC, and that was published by New Media. Uh, but we're, we're working with uh, Souvenir Circle, the, uh, the developer, to bring Qualur Sigma, the PS4 version, which actually has like a ton of new stuff and a new graphics engine. We're uh, working with them to bring that uh, to PS4. It's already out in Japan. Um, and we're uh, going to be publishing it in both uh, Europe and North America uh, before the end of the year. All right. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of stuff lined up. Uh, so the final question here is, uh, would you be willing to be coming back to the program on October 14th to talk more about your way? Yeah, that'd be great. I'd, I'd love to, yeah. All right. Uh, so until then, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, the uh, games platform is Playism. Uh, you can find it at what, uh, playism-games.com? That's correct, yeah. Uh, yes, and uh, you can pick up games like D4, Dark Dreams Don't Die, and La Mulana, and much more on Steam, Humble Bundle, GOG, and they've got games coming to PlayStation, I think. Are you also doing uh, mobile games? We're doing some mobile games as well, yeah. We, um, we have a game called Band Saga that's coming to iOS uh, and PC. Um, that is looking, it's slated to come out uh, like uh, fall this year. All right. Uh, so, yeah, uh, be sure to look, uh, look up their games on your platform of choice. All right, Betty Fan, play us to the next segment. All right. So, welcome to the topic of discussion. This week, we are going to talk about Kenji Inafune because, well, there, you know, uh, there's a lot of controversy uh, surrounding him. Uh, Yalix, why don't you start us off here? Well, Kenji Inafune uh, is probably best known as the guy who has... He's not the he's Him and one other guy came up with Mega Man. He designed... Inafune designed the Mega Man character, and he's been involved in almost every Mega Man game, plus a bunch of other things. <clears throat> and uh, so he was working with Capcom for a long time, and then recently stopped and has been working on his own projects. Yeah, that's what the that's the Reader's Digest version. Yeah, and to continue the story, uh, you know uh, what. Well, how long has it been? Like a year, a year and a half? 
some time ago, he did the Kickstarter for Mighty Number no. Nine, and you know that I think uh, I'm not sure if it set a Kickstarter record, but it was certainly it made what like three four million. Yeah, uh, it made a lot yes. of money. It made like three point eight million just on the Kickstarter, and then enough to put it over for in supplemental PayPal and stuff, which the Kickstarter itself was phenomenally successful, but uh, since then its reputation has been somewhat called into question due to various things. Yeah, I'm kind of glad uh, uh, Nyan uh, left here because this would have been a much more awkward conversation since apparently one of his friends is working on the Red Ash Kickstarter. There's nothing wrong with the Red Ash Kickstarter except for the fact that they split it into two and it's not doing well. That's not exactly true. Like, th- th- there are other problems with the Red Ash Kickstarter. Like, for example, the whole console question. You know, th- they haven't been able to answer this is going. You know, what console is this game going to appear on? Well, they said they were like going to run a survey or something. I think. Yeah, it's still something you yeah. need to have nailed down before you throw down the. Yeah. Well, they 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 put in. They decide. From what they weren't originally planning on doing a console at all, really, but they put it in as a stretch goal that they're probably not going to reach, barring any miracles. Well, uh, based on consumer and once again, that's something that that's, yeah. Once again, that's something that they should have had in mind from the start. Oh, I def- I agree with you. Because I'm like, really, you, you they were surprised that you know people would want a Mega Man style game on a fucking console. You know, it's like yeah. You know, it's like these are the kind. It's like, and it's pretty amazing that this game, that this uh, Kickstarter has been so poorly handled, because you know the, the Mighty Number no. Nine stuff was handled pretty well. Uh, I'm like, I'm not sure if it's different people handling uh, the Red Ash stuff versus the Mighty Number no. Nine stuff, or if it's just you know the backlash against Inafune has reached that level. Uh, Mighty Number no. Nine was also one of the first big retro Kickstarters, so it captured a lot of enthusiasm just by being there. I'm not Whereas sure. that that is no longer as much of a novel thing, and also, I'm like, Mighty uh, Number no. Nine has taken a long time, and there was some funding questions, and there's the question of the TV series and the movie. Yeah. Okay. I'm, okay. I'm going to stop you on that first point because uh, ukulele, Bloodstained, Shenmue. Three, the Bard's Tale Four, all prove that that's not true. It's like it's because it, it, this is something specific to Inafune. I can I can at least attest that because the because the guy had one of the more successful Kickstarters mm-hmm. of recent memory. Oh no, I'm not saying I'm not I'm not saying that nostalgia-based Kickstarters won't do well now. I'm saying that. Uh, hmm. It's like you're saying what exactly? Oh. Yeah, I guess that's part of it. I don't know. Sorry, I have a little <laughs> bit of a headache and I am tired. It's it's just it's a lot of it is because of how Mighty Number no. Nine went. I think. Uh, I think that if, just, if there hadn't been as many, and probably mostly if there hadn't been Mighty Number no. Nine, it would probably be doing better. I, that, that's very possible. It's also. Okay. Sorry, I'm probably trying to over-defend it. Yeah, it's like, but, you know, some of this stuff is not its own fault, although, you know, like like the timing, okay? the People don't 
really understand why the, why they're doing a Kickstarter now, as opposed to you know when the Mighty Number no. Nine is out. But okay, here's the thing about game development: the Mighty Number no. Nine is pretty much done. You know, it's like people shrieking about the game being released. Here's the thing: the Mighty Number no. Nine isn't like nine months away from release. It's coming out September fifteenth. Which is two months, so yeah. it's very it's very close to release, and the people who worked on the development part of it are, uh, as far as Mighty Number no. Nine goes, have no more nothing to do. So it's 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 good to for them to be looking for something new to work on. The right. problem is that Mighty Number no. Nine has something of a deficit of goodwill towards it, based on based on how it was handled post Kickstarter. Not not just. Yeah, mm-hmm. not just the Kickstarter, but the post-Kickstarter stuff, you know. Right, and I think but, that uh, if they had waited until Mighty Number no. 9 came out, there might have been some of that uh, goodwill might have been recouped. Perhaps, but... But on the other, that would still be a no-win scenario for them because they'd have to either pay people to sit around and do nothing or they'd have to be furloughed or something, which is never good for even a small for a small company like that. Yeah. It's also, you know, people have been like, well, what if Mighty Number no. 9 bombs? Then they're fucked anyway, now, aren't they? Yeah, then they're super fucked. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then it's not just one failed Kickstarter. Then it's uh, one failed Kickstarter, and the industry hates everybody. Yeah. Well, now, it's like, I don't want us to just monopolize all the time here, uh, yeah, also, we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves since we're talking about this past year and the guy whose career has been like 20-plus years. So, Well, h- hang on. So, Petty Fan, Ogre, what are your impressions of this whole situation? Um, I literally, I had no idea Inafune was doing another Kickstarter till Sunday because I literally heard nothing about it. That's how under-promoted this was. Yeah, I think the only reason I heard about it is because he posted to Mighty Number no. Nine backers about it, or the Mighty Number no. Nine Kickstarter posted to its backers about it. Uh, it wasn't all o- it wasn't all over the place, and it certainly didn't get as good word of mouth as Mighty Number no. Nine did. Uh, yeah, like Mighty certainly- Number no. Nine, I remember it got like several articles on IGN when it was getting kickstarted, but Red Ash, I saw nothing. And for those of you who aren't familiar with what Red Ash is, it looks like he's uh, trying to pull a Mega Man Legends to Mighty Number no. Nine. Basically, it's a similar setting to Mega Man Legends, using mm. renaming, reusing some of the character names and similar designs from Mighty Number no. Nine. And you'd think that would be a lot more popular, considering how, unless people were super burned by Mega Man Legends Three getting canceled, uh, but you'd think people would still want that kind of game, but well, it's also, don't forget, and here's one of the dirty little truths that nobody really wants to admit. The, the, the Mega Man Legends series was never that popular. You know, they were... It, it, it was extremely popular among a very small audience. Yeah, at the very best, it was a cult hit. But, I mean, that was kind of the thing that led to the cancellation of Mega Man Legends 3 in the first place. Well, that and Inafune leaving. Well, yeah, but it's also the game wasn't looking very hot to, to get uh, greenlit anyway because the 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 fan interaction and they weren't getting the numbers that they were hoping. That's true, and the way that it was set up was a little bit controversial if you're going to be playing as someone besides Mega Man for the first part. But 
Story-wise, I don't know if there's a way to work around that since Mega Man's kind of chilling on the moon. This is true. <laughs> yeah. Ogre, did you have anything to... Sorry, I kind of jumped in there. Ogre? Minute. <laughs> Honestly, this discussion was the first I ever heard of this whole thing. Uh, and I think that kind of cuts to some of the heart of the matter there. This Kickstarter has not been well marked. You know, it's like, uh, like it kind of came out of the blue, and they haven't really gotten the word out. You know, not helping the fact that, uh, you know, they've split in half with this whole anime thing. Yeah, that's the other thing that's kind of weird, is that they are trying to kickstart the game which actually, it looks like the Kickstarter might be for the prologue of the game. It's kind of strangely described on the site, uh, which goes back to the questionably run thing. And then also a separate animation project featuring like the same characters and a similar setting, but not the same story, and I don't know exactly what's up with that. Yeah, it's like, it's also... Uh, geez, I think they've been running into problems with their stretch goals. Like, there's this one-day-only thing. Yeah, they decided to... That's what. That's where the thing about it being for the for the uh, prologue came from, because apparently for the... They added in that people who funded at a certain level would get the full game, too, as well as the prologue or something, and for one-day-only, you could get it for backing at a lower level than they were going to make it permanently. Right. Jeez. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, maybe we should pause on talking about the current bafflingly questionable parts of his career and focus on some of the good times, too. Well, no, well, <laughs> well, no this is why I wanted to talk about the guy, because, you know, because there's been a lot of uh, resentment around the guy. Which is interesting, because, I mean, he is he was one of the creative minds behind, like, almost all of the classic Mega Man... I think all of the classic Mega Man series, all but, like, one or two X games. If I have to see that fucking comment tweet again, I'm going to shoot someone. You know, the whole, he's not a creator, he's a businessman. Huh. Oh, right, another guy. Yeah, yeah. uh, Hideki Kamina, he used to work... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, he's the guy who made Bayonetta... And uh, Devil May Cry and all that shit. Which, that may be true. Certainly the Mega Man franchise was very franchisable. It was very... Right. But that doesn't mean people don't want more of it, and Capcom's not doing more of it since he's not working with them anymore. Right. And it's also, you know, Inafune, you know, before he was uh, any... You know, before he was a, like, businessman, he, he did work as, like, an illustrator. And... That's the thing. He is the co-creator of Mega Man, and he is the guy who actually designed Mega Man. You know, it's like I forget who he shares credit with in the creation of Mega Man, but it's it's a Sonic the Hedgehog situation where mm-hmm. Yuji Naka may be uh, like the levels and all the engineering and all that, and the actual character was made by uh, Naoto. Uh, trying to remember his last name. Oshima. Oshima. Who currently works at the uh, like 
uh, I, I forget the name, but the, they're the ones who made uh, Yoshi's new story. Try not to hold that against them. But, uh, yeah, so Inafune's largest contribution to the gaming world is Mega Man, but it's not the, his only one. He did a lot of work on a lot of other games, like he he worked on DuckTales, uh, various other NES games. No. But, you know, Mega Man was always the bread and butter. And those connections are still there because uh, a party... Yeah, the people who are working on Mighty Number no. 9 and on this thing are... A lot of them have worked on Mega Man games. Well, it's because the company that's actually making um, Mighty Number no. 9 is in a create. You know, they're... You know, they're the ones who are actually making... The, the the latter day Mega Man's, you know, not all of them. Like I don't, I'm I'm not sure if they made like Star Force or they did all of the Zero games and they did nine and ten. Yeah, and they also did the ZX games, which so, yeah are basically an extension of the Zero games. Well, they're the next generation. Yeah, but themat like play style wise, they are. But yeah, actually, they were much more uh, Metroidvania. Uh, yeah, they're less stage-based, yeah. So, the point is, they've got a lot of experience making Mega Man games. Mm-hmm. A- a- and so making, well, what is essentially the uh, bootleg version of Mega Man shouldn't be a problem. Although, you know, some of the controversy around Mighty Number no. 9 is like, you know, perceived graphical downgrades. But it's like, th- this is more... This is more because people bought into the concept art that uh, they showed off initially. And uh, concept art is... How do I put this? It's a not, a, not a reliable uh, barometer on exactly what things are going to look like. It can be as disingenuous as CG um, trailers. Right. Yeah. So I, I, that's one reason why... People are pissed off at the at the Interfune. It, uh, another one is because this game is a tra- what they call a transmedia property. No, it's not just a game. It's what the hell was that? That was a motorcycle. Huh. Was it your roommate turning into a motorcycle? I don't have a roommate, so I don't know how that would work. Was it you turning into a motorcycle? Are you a transformer? Yeah. Yes, you figured out my secret. Good job. All right, uh, focus, people, focus. You'd think it would be a stock car. All right, don't make me invoke Turbo Team here. Sorry. (laughs) But, uh, anyway, well, now I've lost my place. Uh, Sorry. I'm about transmedia property. Oh, there we go. Uh, So, Mighty Number 9 isn't just a, you know, video game. It's and it's not just several video games. It's it's going to be an animated television series. It's going and it's also going to be a live action movie. And the live action movie, I think you said, was someone basically probably asked them, "Can we make a movie out of this?" And they said yes because you know that's money. Yeah. See, also the animated series. Oh, the anime is too. Well, not the Red Ash one. 
I'm talking about. No, I was gonna say I thought I thought the Mighty Number no. Nine animated series was something they decided they want to do after the Kickstarter was a huge success. No, I, I, think that, I think that was a separate licensing thing, and, and yeah, the, the 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 whole licensing thing is free money. I mean, the Mighty Number no. Nine movie is going to suck. I mean, the bad thing that can happen with that is it can be negative publicity for future things, but it is definitely down payment, which is important when you are... I mean, Concept is not a big company, so... No. They're, they're pro- they probably need all of whatever they can get. Yeah, it's Red Ash where, I mean, someone else is doing it, technically, but I'm pretty sure it was their idea, and they are going ahead and doing everything at the same time, which is hard to pull off, especially when you're running two Kickstarters at once. Well, it's like, they're, like they're not the ones who are in charge of the movie. You know, it, it's a different set of people. Like, I'm sure that they'll have some role in it. Yeah, it's Studio 4C is doing, um, yeah. uh, doing Red Ash Magisticata mm. or Magicicata. I, I assume it's Magisticata, but I don't know. And so, the the game is Red Ash, the indelible, <laughs> indelible legend. Yeah. So another problem is the game uh, Horizon. Uh, the the Xbox One exclusive that got announced at E3, which is not which not only had Kenji Inafune attached to it, but it is being done by Armature Studios. I think you mean Recore. Yeah, Recore. There. Sorry, I got my games confused. What did you say? Horizon. Horizon. I was thinking of uh, the PlayStation 4 game. Yeah, this is this is Recore. It's the one with a little robot whose core you can put into other robots, apparently. Right. It looked it looked good, but yeah, this is another thing that they're working on at the same time as something. So. So well, okay. So, and the whole thing is, you know, you know, why are you, you know, and the whole question of why are you going back to Kickstarter when you, you know, you're doing these other things. So here's the thing. Uh, they probably don't own Recore. You know, yeah. One of the Recore is just something to keep the lights on. Yeah. One of the initial reasons why they didn't want to go to a publisher with Mighty Number no. Nine is because uh, ownership. Like, you know, it. it As it stands, Inafune and the company own the rights to Mighty Number no. Nine and the characters and stuff, and. From the way he did Mega Man and from what he's doing with Red Ash now, I'm fairly certain that Inafuna has at least heard of and is probably interested in the way that uh, Osamu Tezuka did the Star System, where he reuses the same names and sort of character designs and different things for different characters, because Mega Man, that happened all over the place with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Red Ash is doing the same thing with Mighty Number no. 9. The main characters are Beck and Call again, and they look different, but somewhat similar setup. And also they added some guy named Tiger who totally does not look exactly like Diesel Vaughn. Oh, God. It's not even subtle. Right. The first thing I, I saw is like, oh, oh hi, Teasel. Uh, but uh, you okay over there? Uh-huh. Sorry, somebody was doing some heavy breathing. Might have been me. I was laughing a little bit quietly, but obviously I was probably exhaling loudly. Uh, anyway, 
so, so yeah, it's like another reason why they've gone to Kickstarter for this is because, you know, if they go with a publisher, they probably would have uh, had to give up the rights. But here's the thing. That's not necessarily the concern of the audience or the player. Oh, no. That, that, and that's part of the reason why the audience isn't a huge fan of the way that some of the stuff has gone, probably. But as a creator who, um, frankly, got kicked out of a company that he worked for for a long time and can't make any more games with the property that that company owns now, I can totally understand his desire to own these characters. Yep. Well, and that's not a situation that's unique to him. I mean, we're seeing it all over the place. You know, right. Once again, going back to some other, you know, like ukulele or uh, Bloodstain, you know, these are games that are being done in the style of the old games, but, you know, they're going to be the IP of the creators here. And mm-hmm. That's something that you know that Kickstarter has allowed for, you know, like. But, uh, you know, and uh, where's the uh, where's the Red Axe Kickstarter at right now? It is at four hundred fifty-four thousand dollars of eight hundred thousand dollars for the initial funding, and then it has stretch goals, but let's not even they're not likely at this point. Yeah, like the game is about 50% funded, and it's got about 12 days to go. It might make it because, well, you know, it's hit the what they call the flabby part of the Kickstarter arc. Because mm-hmm. it's not the first week, and it's not the last week. Yeah, yeah, kicks uh, so. For those who don't know, Kickstarter, the majority of which make their money on the like the first couple of days and the last couple of days. That's when the most excitement comes from. The, the rest of the time, it's just kind of there, and the, you know they'll do things like they'll do stretch goals or they'll do updates. They'll they'll do X, Y, and Z to keep the momentum going. But pretty much every Kickstarter is going to hit up a wall of some kind and slow down. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily bad, bad unless, like, it's estimated that if you don't have about 40% funding in your, in your like, first three days, you're going to struggle to reach that goal. Yeah, and they definitely are going to struggle, so. Well, yeah, I, they've already been struggling, I'd say. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and yeah, the slowdown period is a lot less severe when it's a slowdown to keep you from reaching the last three stretch goals than when it is to keep you from reaching funding. Yeah. And, you know, 800000 is not untenable. Although, I, I, this is probably not the amount of money they were looking for. From Oh, no, they wanted... The, the 800000 apparently will make a game about half the size that they wanted to. Or maybe maybe two thirds. Yeah, and the lesson to take away from here is right or wrong, pissing off your uh, not just your consumer base, but your you know your funding source. 
Well, I think a lot of it was probably not intentional pissing off or anything. It's just they fucked up pretty bad in a couple of ways. Well, yeah, and see what that can cost you. It's awesome. Oh, no, definitely, yeah. I think Mighty Number no. 9 was one of the first of the, the retro auteur Kickstarter things. And it did well, but I think all of the ones since then have been run better. Well, it's also, you know, something we haven't gone into yet is, you know, remember, there was, there was not just the one Kickstarter for Mighty Number no. 9. They went back to the crowdfunding well you know, to get, like, voice acting. Right, because they wanted to make it the biggest and best thing they can be, which is sort of admirable, but at the same, admirable, like, as a in basic desire, but it comes off badly if you keep asking for more money to do something that's already been funded. Yeah, it's like, uh, maybe they should have, uh, you know, planned for that. And it's also because it was for something like voice acting. You know, uh, which Mega Man games don't need, but right. I guess it is considered standard nowadays, so they decided they wanted to try to add it. I don't know. Yeah, well, it's like voice acting for, for a 2D platformer isn't, strictly speaking, necessary. I mean, Shantae Half-Genie Hero did not make all the voice acting goals, I don't think, but it's going to be fine anyway. Yeah, it's like, you know, voice acting was seen as, to the audience, a... A, super, a superfluous expense. Mm-hmm. You know. And there's also, like, I think initially they were planning, like, you know, they could only do it for, like, one, like, they could only have, like, English or Japanese voice acting or something like that. Like, it's been a while, but, you know, it, it's just another thing that wasn't handled well. Like, you know, they, it's like, Concept needs better public relations and marketing people. Well, wasn't one of the big things that they had some of their public relations people had a uh, some kind of major snafu fairly early in the uh, post-starter uh, phase of Mighty Number no. Nine? The, the, I think that was that community manager. Yeah, I think something like that. I don't know exactly what it was, but that was one of the first things that went kind of not well. Yeah. So. I really hope this game makes its goal because it looks. Well, first off, I really wanted Mega Man Legends 3, and if this would be anything like a Mega Man Legends game, I want it. And it looks really cool, and frankly, I would be disappointed if this doesn't happen and if Com- Concept has a bunch of follow up problems and Inafune never gets to do anything else because of it. I'm sure he'll be able to do other things, just maybe not a concept too big. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like, if nothing else, you know, even if this doesn't get made, he's got other things going. Like, you know, there's still that whole Mighty Number no. 9 game that is going to be a real game and is coming out here in, like, less than two months. Mm-hmm. So... You know that's probably gonna that's gonna be the big litmus test. And I do look forward to playing that. Although, yeah, I look forward to playing that. I would have liked to have had some time to play that and enjoy it before worrying about the next thing. But you know, whatever. Well, but, uh, I know. Well, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll note that by the time the game comes out, the whole Red Ash thing will be will be answered. 
for a long time. Like mm-hmm. the campaign only has less than two weeks left, so you know either the game is going to get made or gets I don't know put on the shelf. Mm. So which would be unfortunate. Yeah. So only time will tell on this matter, but you know. It's not looking good for Red Ash. All right. So I think that uh, that about does it for this week. Well, uh, not sure what we're going to talk about next week. We haven't really thought about it. I, I don't know. Ogre, do you have anything you want to talk about? Leisure Suit Larry. Ooh. Oh, no. <laughs> like, okay. We can talk about that. We don't really talk too much about old Sierra adventure games. Yeah. Does this mean I need to dust off the floppy drive for the USB floppy drive downstairs? Uh, uh, they are all on GOG. Yeah. I know. I, I know that. I know. I know. Yeah, I know that because I bought them on GOG. So. And the first. Uh, and the first. Are you really going to make me play porn games to talk about for next week? Yeah. And I know they're not. Games. Yeah. I know they're not straight porn games. Well, they're, the old fan, they're fan service-ish games, maybe at best. Well, the ones done under Outlaw, the uh, Magnum Log, that was. Ooh, well, I'll talk about that next week. Oh. Uh, but yeah, let's see if I can't get into context about Outlaw. Oh God. Come on, it's like weirder things have happened. That is true. Yeah, we had um, Lorne Landing on the show. <laughs> anyway. I was going to say Grant Kirkhope. Yeah. I saw that one coming. Yeah. Who's our guest next week, Adam? Well, anyway, our guest next week is a guy named Michael Hoyos uh, from Space Rhino Games. Uh, they are going to be our first developer from Puerto Rico. Now, we're a regular world tour here on the show, uh, in case you haven't noticed. Space Rhino, huh? Yeah, uh, so they're making a game, or I think I think it's out. I don't know. I don't have an iOS device, but it's called Breach Tower Defense. It's a quote-unquote new breed of tower defense because it combines the principles of tower defense and MOBA games, which honestly isn't that surprising because, considering the origins of both games. That honestly sounds to me almost in the vein of it's a game that combines pizzas and calzones. Mm. Uh, But insofar as, to to clarify, a MOBA is kind of... Most MOBAs, I think, are effectively very specialized tower defense games. Yeah, well, they're both cut from the same cloth. For those who don't know, both MOBA and tower defense games come from Warcraft 3, you know, mods. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, I believe it's available right now on the App Store, but I don't know, does anyone here have any have an iOS device? I, mean, I know we have Android devices. But yeah, I'm the only one with an Android device. I think we might have to ask Naka. I, think I, has an I have an Android device. tablet. I have no iOS device because if I did, then my uncle would win. <laughs> and he might be listening to this podcast, so he may have already won. <laughs> I find that so funny. 
Right. All right, but, well, it's like at the very least, you know, we'll muddle. Uh-huh. You know, and we'll find out why this game is on Android. Anyway, so until next week, all I can do is wish you good gaming. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.